I was muted on my, on my belt. <laughs> but it means for it to be not yet. And, and we're going to kind of dig into that from, from what Paul says in the book of Corinthians and from what John witnessed in the book of Revelation. So before we jump in, I'm going to open us with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll dig on to scripture this morning. Father, I just pray that as we study your word today, we're, we're excited. We're, we're excited to be a part of the kingdom as it exists now. But God, that we long for the kingdom that is coming into eternity. That we long to be a part of it. That we hope for the beauty of it, for the fullness of dwelling with you. And I just pray that this message this morning, God, that it awakens an inner desire within us for that kingdom. God, speak through me this morning. Let your voice be heard as we study your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Now, some of you probably have grandparents or parents who experienced the Great Depression. Uh, maybe you know someone close to you who has told you stories of what it was like. Maybe you were close enough to it that you, had, you, you were a part of the aftermath of it. My connection to this horrific era of human history, of American history, was through my grandfather. He was born in the early 1920s, which meant he fully lived through and always remembered the time of the Depression. And, and he went off and he fought in World War II. And after returning home, he found himself a job working for the railroad company in Cumberland, Maryland. And, and my pappy was a hard worker his entire life. He made decent money with the railroad company. He was able to build himself a nice house on a decent piece of land. He raised five kids. He retired with a solid pension. But I bring all of this up about him to say that even though he escaped the Depression, he escaped the war, and he survived, and, and he you know, lived a solid life, the Depression never left him. He never left it behind. And if you know someone who grew up during the Depression, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. As amazing as an individual as my grandfather was, as many things that I saw him do that I was just enamored by, as many little inventions that he would create to just figure stuff out with, there was one thing about my grandfather that everyone knew about him. He was a hoarder. If you know anyone from, that grew up in the Depression, they kind of have this predisposition where they hang on to everything. And when my grandfather died, it took my aunts and uncles, my aunt and uncles, about five months to clean up all of his stuff. They, they were going through his stuff. They found milk jugs that were 20 years old that were just sitting in his, not with milk in them anymore, but just he kept the jugs because he never knew what he might use them for. Now, I have a lot of Folgers containers, the coffee containers that I put like little um, things in my shop, but I don't have milk jugs from 20 years ago. But that's just part of what it meant to grow up in the Depression. It never left him because he was always worried, well, maybe I'll need this someday. Maybe this old thing that I've used, that I've worn out, you know, maybe I'll have to repurpose it someday because I won't have enough money to buy something else. And maybe you are like my pap, you're someone that reuses or hoards things and your wife and kids get on you for doing that, I don't know. But for my pap, it was more than, than not wanting to move on. 
It was more than the difficulty of letting go of the past. It was the fact that he was worried that it would come back around and that he would have to make sure that he had enough old stuff piled up in order to see his way through any disaster that might come his way. And and so often, you know, we might not be a hoarder. We might not cling to all of our old things, all of our used things. But so often we have a, a, a mindset that is reminiscent of, of that of my paps or someone you might know that is similar, where we cling to this life. You know, as Christians, we've made the commitment to say this life is the old life. This is the used life. This is the life that has an end, an expiration date. But we, we make that, that, that proclamation and yet we still cling to it. You know, it's a lot easier for us to cling to the kingdom that is already here, to cling to the church, to cling to the promises of Christ that have already come to fruition, it can be often a lot more difficult to hope for and cling to the kingdom that's not yet realized, to cling to the eternity that we've been promised but not, have not yet set foot in. So this morning, what we're going to be looking at is, is how does the not yet kingdom, the kingdom that has not yet been realized, how does it work in conjunction with the already kingdom? And, and, and what does the not yet kingdom usher in that is different than this already kingdom? And how do we live here in the already in a way that is devoted to the not yet? So we have a lot of questions to get into this morning as we, as we study scripture. And we're going to be looking primarily at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to turn with me there, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. I know it says 23 on, on the bulletin and on the, on the board, but we're going to start in verse 20 this morning. And remember, Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth because they have a lot of immorality. They have a lot of struggle with hanging on to the Christian faith. They had no problem with accepting Jesus as Lord. They had no problem with accepting the teachings of Paul and Apollos and Peter and all these different apostles, but they had some difficulty living it out. They had some difficulty ensuring that their life reflected their faith. And And Paul, here at the end of his letter, he talks about what it means for Christians to give their lives to Christ. What that entails, what the final outcome is, that when we give our life to Christ, it's transforming our life. And we have to have that transformation because of what comes in the end. So listen to what what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. He says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the death... Of, of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be abolished. Is death. So in this passage here, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, he's talking to us about what it means to place our faith in Christ. He says, just as in Adam all die, in Christ all are raised to life. What does that mean? It means that 
The fall produced sin. The fall produced death. The fall produced a separation of humanity from God. It, it produced corruption, and we'll get into that in a second. But it produced this in eventuality of humanity dying. And he says, just as Adam, who fell from God's presence, who, who fell into temptation, who allowed corruption into the world, who brought death into the world through sin, just as all die through Adam, through Christ, through Christ, as he lives, we too shall live. But there's more to it than that in this passage here. Last week we talked about the kingdom that's already. We talked about how Christ has ushered in the kingdom already, that we're called to take the kingdom to the corners of the earth, to spread the news of the gospel, to live in the church, to be a light. That we here, because the Spirit of God is within us, the presence of God is here. No, no longer is the presence of God retained to one room inside the temple of God. Now the presence of God is in the hearts, in the soul of every single person who believes. So when we gather together, the presence of God is here. It's manifest. And if we don't believe that, guys, we're not the church. If we don't believe that when we come here together, the presence of God is right here because the presence of God is in every single one of us then we're missing a key point of what it means to be a part of the already kingdom. That we get a glimmer, we get a, 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 a piece of God's presence now. But that piece of God's presence isn't the fullness of God's presence. That will come when Christ hands the keys to the kingdom to God. He said, it says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. Remember last week we talked about how the Pharisees and, and their understanding of the Messianic kingdom was one that the Messiah would come and set the Jewish nation on top of all the kingdoms of the world. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's true. He's going to come and he's going to, he, he's going to set his kingdom above all else. But it's not a Jewish kingdom. It's not a, 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 a kingdom of, of what we think about. It's him abolishing everything else. It's him trampling death under his feet. It's him saying, this kingdom is over and the new kingdom has, become, has begun. And who gets to participate in that kingdom? Well, Paul says, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ. That's why we're called his bride. We're called his bride because we are his. Because he is ours. He lives in us. And we know him deeply and intimately. We belong to Christ which means we don't belong to this world, which means the kingdom of the already is not the kingdom of the end. It's the kingdom that is destined to move into something else. The kingdom of the already dwells in a world that is going to fade, that is going to end, that is going to finish. The kingdom of the not yet has no end, has no expiration date. And those who belong to the kingdom of God already those who belong to Christ now, those who are the bride of Christ now, 
when Jesus hands the keys of that kingdom to God in order to establish the not yet, those are the ones who participate in the not yet. And that occurs when Christ's final victory happens. When he returns, he ushers in the not yet kingdom. For now, we just wait in the already. Now, what does it mean? Why is it so important that there is a not yet kingdom? Now, why, why, why are the Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees, they, they would struggle with this concept of the already kingdom and the not yet kingdom. Because they would have wondered, well, why doesn't God just come and establish his kingdom right here, right now? What's to stop him from saying, okay, everything that was there is done with. Now we're just going to restart all of it, but we're just going to do it right now in the already. We're going to go fully in right now already. Why is it necessary that there's both an already kingdom and a not yet kingdom? Why is it necessary that the kingdom of God is in our midst now, but the kingdom of God is not fully realized until the end? Why is that so necessary? Look what Paul says as we go down into verse 50. He says, what, am I, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is the not yet kingdom. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will be all be changed in a moment. And the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed, for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Now, what Paul is, is telling us here is a lot of important information about what it means to belong to the not yet kingdom. Flesh and blood cannot inherit that kingdom. Corruption cannot inherit that kingdom. Why? Why not? Because that kingdom exists in the fullness of God's presence. The full, perfect, infinite nature of God. And we're not. We're finite. We have an expiration date. We have flesh and blood. We, we, we are corrupt in our individuality. We are corrupt in our nature. And that can't inherit what it means to be in the fullness of God's presence. I, I like to say that the fullness of God's presence is a reality that is more real than reality. And that might seem like an oxymoron to you, but it's not. There's a, a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And I, I've mentioned this book before. And this isn't like some of C.S. Lewis's other books like Mere Christianity, Problem with Pain, some of those philosophical books that are difficult. This is a narrative similar to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this narrative, it unpacks the way C.S. Lewis understands eternity. And it's from the viewpoint of someone who was in hell, 
and then comes into heaven and gets to spend some time in heaven. And what this main character comes to realize is that heaven is more real than real. He, he says that, he, he makes a comment that when he comes in here and he, he gets into the space of heaven and he sees the, the, the fields and the streams and the, the trees, he says they, they, they seem like, they, they make the, the solar system seem like it's an indoor place. It seems more real than reality. It's fuller than the fullness of life on earth. And it's hard for us to grasp our minds about that because all we know is earth. All we know is this. But an eternity of, in God's presence is just simply more. Beauty is greater. Love is more profound. Joy it, 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 the joy we experience here would be like sadness compared to the joy of eternity. Because eternity in God's full presence is just simply more. It is more real than reality itself. And flesh and blood cannot inherit it because flesh and blood is corrupt. So what inherits it? What's that mean? Well, God is a spiritual being. Anytime you come into scripture and you find that God walked with man, or God showed his back to Moses, or God wrestled with Jacob. Those are cases of what's called anthropomorphism, where you're taking qualities of God and putting human characteristics on them. But what we know about God is God is spirit. And God can be and do whatever he wants, but God himself is spirit in the fullness of his dwelling place, the fullness of the reality that he is bringing us into is spirit. But it is so real and so profound that it will make this life seem like a dream. It will make this reality seem like a memory. And we'll get there and we'll forget anything that ever was because all we'll exist is in the fullness of the reality of God's presence. And what Paul is saying here is that in order to inherit all of that, in order to inherit the fullness of all that, because that is so real, because that is so perfect, because that is so pure, you cannot inherit it unless you've been transformed by God. You cannot inherit the incorruptibility of the eternity in God's presence unless you yourself have the incorrupt spirit within you. Because your corruption cannot live in the incorruption of eternity. You cannot inherit the fullness of eternal reality in God's presence with simply your physical flesh and blood body. Because flesh and blood doesn't exist in the fullness of God's reality. Unless you've been transformed, you cannot inherit the not yet kingdom. Unless the spirit of God resides in your soul, unless the spirit of God reigns within your inmost being, you have no place in the not yet kingdom of eternity. And that is a very important truth to be realized. Because we like to say 
oh, such and such, they're in a better place now. Such and such, they're now you know, with their parents, they're now with their grandparents. Guys, eternity, the, the, the not yet kingdom, it's a place where we dwell with God. It's a place where it's nothing but incorruption. It's nothing but the fullness of God's presence. And, and, you know, maybe we'll look out and we'll see our loved ones. We'll see our family. We'll see our friends. But I, I, I promise you, if you have the spirit of God within you and you're now inheriting the eternal dwelling place of God, you won't care. And I say that with all sincerity as possible. You won't care because you will see the God who you could only know a glimmer of in your life in his fullness. And you won't care about anything else because you now know the infinite, unknowable God forever. And to relegate that to saying, well, you know, heaven is all about eating as much as we want or seeing all of our friends and family forever. I don't think we'll care. I think all we'll be focused on is sitting in front of the throne of the Lamb and God and dwelling in his presence. And so when does all this take place? When does all this come to fruition? We're going to end this morning just looking briefly at passages in Revelation. In Revelation 18, it says this passage. The angel called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. Babylon the Great, and it goes on and on to, des to describe Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is representative of the kingdoms of the world. And Babylon is, is often used in prophetic literature. If you think back to the Tower of Babel, that was kind of the, the, the pinnacle of human pride. The ancient city of Babylon, where the tower was built by the people in order to try to put themselves on par with God. And, and even though that is an ancient story from Genesis chapter 10 in Scripture, that desire has lived on throughout every, every Try to achieve grace. We try to pride ourselves as being on par with God. We try to say, no, God doesn't choose morality. We choose morality. God doesn't choose, God doesn't reign sovereign over my life. I reign sovereign over my life. God isn't the arbiter of goodness and righteousness. I am. And we might not come out straight and say this, but if you look at society as a whole, that's what it's been. Why do you think so often now we're willing to say, we're willing to relegate an argument of abortion simply to, is it a life or is it not a life? Well, God says it is. Let's leave it at that. No, 
that whole argument is there because we want to say we have the authority that God has over issues like that. There's this new common trend that's called, that's called uh, postmodernism, where they say truth is relative, meaning whatever you think is immoral is immoral to you, but this person might not think that same thing is immoral. So what they're saying is whatever we think is right and wrong is right and wrong to us. There is no one that's telling us right from wrong, objectively speaking. What else does that mean? That means that we think we know better than God. Now, that was the issue with the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 10, and that has always been the issue for every era of human civilization, and it is very much so today. So who is, who, what is the Babylon the Great? What civilization is that? It's just the whole of human history. And if you look at human history right now, if you look at the world right now, I'd say we fit the description of that very well. And what has to take place before the not yet kingdom comes, civilization must fall. The people who say, I know better than God. The people who say, my decisions are my decisions. God doesn't tell me what to do. The people that say, my life is my life. God doesn't have any sort of sovereignty over it. Those people will fall. Question is, even though you've given your life to Christ, are you still a part of Babylon the Great? Have you said, well, I'll give my life to Christ, but I still want to do X, Y, and Z. I'll give my life to Christ, and I know he says this in his word, but I think it should be this. I'll give my life to Christ, but I'll only do some of the things that he asked me to do. Here's the truth of the matter. If you think that Jesus is Lord and God, that he died, that he resurrected, that he ascended, that he's coming back, you're not going to be halfway in. You're just not. If you fully believe what scripture says why would you ever only do half of what it says? If you fully believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is Lord, that he died, that he resurrected, that he's returning, that he has the keys to the eternal kingdom in God's presence, why would you ever say, I know better? I'll take over my life. We do that because it's foolish pride. We do that because we follow the mold of those from the Tower of Babel. We try to place ourselves on par with God. But all of that must fall in order for the not yet kingdom to reign. And here's what the not yet kingdom is. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, grief, crying, pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Previous things are the things of the world, the things of human pride, the things of Babylon the Great, the things that we so often cling to are gone. They will be gone. 
and yet we still find ourselves clinging to mud instead of embracing the pureness of the water that Christ offers. We find ourselves rolling around and doing whatever it is that this figment of reality has for us instead of attaching ourselves to the realest reality of the not yet kingdom. We, we satisfy ourselves with coming to, to church once a day or once a week and, and saying, you know, that's enough for me. I'll see you next Sunday. Instead of saying, all I want is to dwell with God. All I want is a Revelation 21 faith will be satisfied with a Sunday morning, one hour a week faith. Jesus' victory over death, over Babylon the Great, and our transformation through that spirit, through his spirit, is what brings us into a dwelling with him for all of eternity. And if we have that sort of faith, if we have that sort of belief, then why would we ever live in a way that's not in accordance with that? If we believe that he died, if we believe that he resurrected, if we believe that what he says is true, if we believe that he is Lord, that he is returning, why would we ever? This is God. If we believe him, why would we ever cling to this world instead of the one that he is offering? Why would we ever hope for anything less than eternal dwelling with God? without any corruption, without any sin, without any death. And I know that it can be difficult for us to live and hope for the not yet kingdom, for an eternal kingdom, a fulling dwelling with God, whenever we walk outside and we see corruption, whenever we open up our phones and, and see a, a non-ending list of disasters plaguing the world, plaguing civilization. Whenever we go to the hospital and see so many loved ones sick. It can be hard to cling to a reality that has not yet come when the reality that we lived in right now is so difficult. But John clearly tells us that it is coming and it'll make all things new. It says in verse five, then one, the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithful, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He's making all things new for those who have the Spirit of God within them. And for those who don't, for those who would rather cling to this world, who would rather cling to the life that the Babylon the Great has to offer instead of the eternity that God has, Our inheritance, 
their inheritance is the second death. And so at the start of this message, we, we ask the question, how can we live a life in the already kingdom? How can we live a life here today in the kingdom of God that we are currently residing in as the church? How can we live in that kingdom while being devoted to the not yet? And it's an important question of our faith. When we understand that the not yet kingdom means a full destruction of the world that we live in now. It's therefore important that we know that we need to stop clinging to that world. So what are some things that we can do that we can implement in order to dwell here while longing for the not yet? There's four things. First, we got to spend time thinking about the nature of God. How often do you sit down and think about God's infinite nature, about his infinite love, his infinite power, his infinite knowledge, his infinite mercy, his infinite judgment, his infinite wrath? How long do you dwell on the infiniteness of God? If you look at the Psalms, David dwelled on God's nature all the time. And he was considered a man after God's own heart. How often do we sit down and think about how vast God is? It's important that we do that so that when we think about heaven, we just don't simply think, I can't wait to get to heaven to eat all the food I want and not get fat. That's not what heaven is. It's important we dwell on God's infinite nature now. So all we think about when we think about heaven is, I can't wait to get there to fully see what God's infinite nature looks like. It'll take an eternity for us to witness it, but we will get to witness it. So one way to live in the already while hoping for the not yet is by spending time thinking about the nature of God. Secondly, we need to let God remind us about the finite and corrupt nature of this life. And God does this in many ways. We suffer. We face hardship. We face strife. We have all sorts of things. Sufferings can be our greatest teachers of the fact that this life is temporary. That this life has an expiration date. And so often, we'll let suffering and hardship turn us into attaching more to this world. Okay, I got to dig myself out of this. I got to make sure that I get through this. I got I to gotta fight to get out of this. God, help me out. Help me get out of this. Help me get through this. Instead of saying, God, thank you for reminding me that this world is finite and corrupt. Thank you for reminding me that this world is temporary and I have an eternity of bliss with you. Why do we let hardship and strife make us cling here more instead of desiring an eternity with him? Let God remind us through those things that they're momentary. Thirdly, let us allow our worship to be practice. What that means is when we worship God, we're preparing ourselves for an eternity in his presence. And I don't think we think about that enough. I think we look at the words, we read the words, we listen to the song. It's a beautiful song. We let it kind of move us a little bit, and then we sit back down. This is what we're doing forever. This is what we'll get to do in front of God's full presence. Let us, as we're worshiping, think about that. That right now, as we're gathered together, the presence of God is here, and we're practicing for when the presence of God is fully in our midst. Let our worship be meaningful. 
And lastly, it's important that we're evangelistic about the not yet. Now, I've, I've heard so many sermons and so many people talk about why they need to, or tell other people why they need to come to Christ in order that their life will be blessed, in order that their life will be better, in order that Jesus transforms them now. How much of our evangelism is spent saying, buddy, I'm sorry, Jesus said that your life might be more difficult here. But eternity, eternity is going to beyond, be beyond your comprehension. How much of our evangelism is spent talking about the reality of the fact that this world, it's awful. That this world is corrupt because we made it corrupt. Yes, the spirit of God is here. The kingdom is already. But how much of our evangelism is saying, just wait. Come to him and just wait for what he is bringing. Don't come to him so that you have blessings heaped upon you. Come to him because he is giving you an eternity in his presence. When we let our evangelism be focused on the not yet, it changes our focus as well. Now, all of these things are to say, church, let's not cling to Babylon. Let's not cling here. We are his already. We are his kingdom now. But we have an inheritance waiting. And let us let that inheritance go before us every single day. Be our focus. Every single day. Be our longing. Every single day. Be on our hearts. Every single day. Because that will change the way we live change the way we see love and desire God. And if you haven't let that spirit of God come into your heart, if you haven't given your life now and you haven't stopped clinging to this world now, now's the time to make that decision to say that I'm giving him my life. I'm letting that spirit come in. I want to inherit the eternity. Or maybe you have accepted Christ, but you still have that problem of clinging to this world. Now's the time to say, I'm going to let go. And I'm going to desire him. And we're going to close with this song. It's called Your Glory. For all of eternity, we will witness his glory. We will witness it and we'll be in it because of his blood. And I hope that it is your desire to witness it as well. And that if you haven't given him your life, you come forward and you give him your life. And if you have and you're still clinging to this world, that you let go. But I'm going to close us in a word of prayer. As we finish with this song of worship, I just pray that you let your hearts be moved. Father God, your eternity is waiting. You have prepared a kingdom in your presence beyond anything we can ever comprehend or know or imagine. So superior to this life, that it will make this life seem like a fleeting memory, like a bad dream, like a shadow. Lord, move us every single day to desire and dwell on your eternity that is waiting. For anyone here, God, that has not given their lives to you, 
still clinging to this world, help them to let go, to give themselves to you, to grow in you, to desire your eternity forever. Thank you, God, for your love for us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.